0: My name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time is Liz Truss about to go full Trump by relocating the UK embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, a decision which would be loaded with political significance. The PM told her Israeli counterpart Yair Lapid at the UN summit in New York last month that a move was under consideration. The proposal has been contemned both nationally and internationally with the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, this weekend warning that it could damage peace prospects. We'll be hearing from former diplomat Alexandra Hall-Hall. Her 30 years in the Foreign Office included heading the Middle East peace process section. She was also head of the UK's Human Rights Department and advised the US State Department on Human Rights and Democracy in the Middle East. Before that, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. It is a wonderful monthly newspaper, and there's exclusive content in the print edition that you can't see anywhere else. And we can report without fear or favour, because there's no wealthy non-dom or hedge fund billionaire telling us what to say. Our funding comes from ordinary subscribers, people like you. So please subscribe if you can, to the byline times you get full details over at our website at bylinetimes.com subscriptions start from as little as three pounds a month more details as i say at bylinetimes.com if you do subscribe by the way or indeed if you just go to our website you will see a number of articles by alexandra hall hall bringing her extensive diplomatic career to bear on our pages and full of insight and we hope wisdom Alexandra welcome along you're right
1: thank you very much what a lovely introduction
0: Alexandra why are you so concerned about the possibility of the UK moving its embassy to Jerusalem which from the outside to people who perhaps don't understand the politics of the Middle East might simply seem like a move from one city to another get Pickford's in
1: Well, I have two main concerns with it, and by far the most important concern is that it would violate an internationally accepted consensus that the status of Jerusalem is contested. It is disputed territory. The international community's view is that East Jerusalem is illegally occupied territory, and we do not recognize Israel's declaration that Jerusalem is its permanent capital and that the only way to settle the status of Jerusalem is through a negotiated settlement with the Palestinians. So any UK decision to move the embassy, it might seem like a small practical terms, it's not a big deal, but in symbolic and international legal terms, it's a hugely significant move. I don't, as far as I'm aware, believe that there is any massive Israeli pressure on the UK to move its embassy. Up until now, it may like us to move it, but it's accepted the UK's position that until there is a negotiated settlement with the Palestinians, uh, we will keep our embassy in Tel Aviv. And indeed, when President Donald Trump announced it was going to move the US embassy to Jerusalem, Prime Minister Theresa May condemned that move in very clear terms. So one is just the international principle The second issue really is why make this move? I mean, Prime Minister Truss has sort of badged herself as the disruptor in chief, and she's certainly achieving plenty of disruption on the domestic front. But why stir up this diplomatic hornet's nest internationally? And she herself has been very, very clear about the need to uphold international law with regard to Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. So why violate those same principles? and stir up a hornet's nest in the Middle East. So those are really my two main
0: concerns. Donald Trump, as you say, organised the relocation of the US Embassy. I think he announced it in 2017, and the US Embassy did move to Jerusalem in 2018, on the 70th anniversary of the founding of the state of Israel. And I guess for people in Palestine who are not Jewish and who may resist the Jewish state, this could be seen as an act of provocation.
1: Well, I think it's really rather of a betrayal, to be perfectly frank. The UK has always tried to pitch itself as an honest broker in the Middle East, that is not afraid to criticize Israel over some of its actions in the occupied territories. In fact, its continued occupation of those territories, the building of settlements, excessive force against Palestinians. I mean, when you read the papers, it is actually really depressing and sad just to read the sort of daily litany of clashes between young Palestinian teenagers throwing stones at Israelis and then them getting shot in return, it's its incredibly sad. But the UK has also not been afraid to criticise the Palestinians for failing to engage in good faith or condemning rocket attacks from Gaza. And the UK has really tried to position itself as an honest broker, not least, I would argue, to compensate for the fact that it was a set of British decisions around World War I, that laid the seeds for the current conflict because the British pledged in the Balfour Declaration that the Jewish people should be allowed to establish a home in what was then Palestine under Ottoman rule. But they also promised the Arabs that if the Arabs supported them in helping defeat the Ottoman Empire, the British would support the establishment of an Arab state in the same territory. So I think That kind of duplicity laid some of the foundations for the current conflict. And certainly for as long as I was a diplomat, the British government has always tried to be incredibly fair handed and even and supported the two state solution. The problem with this current move is it really puts way more of our eggs in the Israeli basket and really represents a betrayal of our good faith towards the Palestinians. So I think it really damages us in the region and it damages any notion that we are a fair player and an honest broker in this situation.
0: A group of Arab countries who operate under the banner of the Gulf Cooperation Council, with whom the UK had hoped to sign a a post-Brexit trade deal, have said that Truss's plan could jeopardise that. So, again, you just scratch your head and think, well, we're in this post-Brexit world. The UK then has the freedom, in inverted commas, to go out and strike trade deals globally. But it takes an unforced stand, or potentially takes an unforced stand on this international issue, which could backfire.
1: Well, I'm a tennis player. I would say it's an unforced error. It's a move that doesn't contribute anything and potentially contains costs. The other countries that have moved their embassies to Jerusalem, there is the United States, Guatemala, Honduras and Kosovo. So there are four other countries that have now moved their embassies to Jerusalem. The issue with the British doing it is the British held the mandate in that region after the World War I. And we laid the seeds of the current conflict through our different promises to different communities in that region, Uh, the Balfour Declaration to the Jews, correspondence with the Jordanian Hashemite royal family through the Hussein McMahon correspondence, and a separate agreement with the French called the Sykes-Picot Agreement, where we decided we would also divide that territory up between the French and the British. So we laid some of the foundations for that conflict. And so I think it's incumbent on us above all to tread carefully. It's not just any other country deciding to move its embassy to Jerusalem. It's the British. So it carries symbolism way beyond just moving a building and opening opening a new office.
0: And everywhere we go in this story, Alexandra, we are dogged by the shadow of history aren't we as you say we go back to 1915 this is the sykes Pico agreement so Britain and France agrees to split the land that is modern day Israel and the land that would be called Palestine Britain and France agreed to to chop that up as imperial powers between each other yes
1: and that encompasses Lebanon and Syria as well and Jordan
0: and then in 1915, 1916, there was something called the Hussein McMahon Correspondence, in which the British agreed to establish an independent Arab state in the region. That, as you say, was in, so in return for Arab support against the Ottoman Empire. And then a year later, in 17, 1917, the Balfour Declaration, which expressed support for the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. <laughs> so... Various parties in that part of the world have reason to view Britain, to say the least, with great suspicion. And we we can kind of look back at imperial history and say, well, all this was a long time ago. But those fractures that were introduced over a century ago have never really been resolved, never been healed.
1: I think one of the experiences I've had of the last few years is re-looking again at British history with somewhat brighter eyes and clearer eyes. I mean, when I was a diplomat, I always felt very proud of the British. I felt like we genuinely did try to be a force for good in the world. And then in various postings all the way around the world, I kept on coming up against situations where the British had been the colonial empire and we had left legacies that created problems for the modern day successors of what had once been British colonial territories. So, for example, I was posted in India. Now, of course, the infamous partition of India and Pakistan and the UK essentially washed its hands. We could not get the Muslim population and the Hindu population to agree on the status of Kashmir which remains disputed territory even up to this day with people still dying. Then in Africa, arbitrary borders were drawn across continents as European powers divided up those states. In many of those states, the British would favor one ethnic group over another. And the sort of poisonous legacy that that sowed between ethnic groups fuels some of the conflicts even today. The same might be said of the French in Rwanda. The sort of tensions between Hutu and Tutsi is partly a legacy of the fact that one ethnic group was favoured over another when we were the colonial power. And everywhere I've served in the world, I keep coming across these legacies. Same is true in Burma. I used to work on Burma in the 1980s. And of course, that's a sort of tragic country where there have been tensions for 30 or 40 years between the ethnic Burman majority and a succession of minorities, the Kachin, the Karen, the Shan, and other ethnic minorities. And again, the UK tended to favor or support one ethnic group over another. Same in Sri Lanka, we imported a lot of Tamil workers into Sri Lanka and imported tensions into what was then Ceylon. So we have a lot to account for. And we like to think that we were a more benevolent colonial power. And in some ways, especially when you compare some other colonial powers, we may not have been so actively brutal, but we created legacies that poison those modern states today. And that is true in Israel and Palestine. And it really pains me to say that because I want to be proud of being British. I'm not a Britain hater, but I think we need to understand those legacies. And therefore, we need to tread more carefully.
0: Burma, now called Myanmar, of course. In terms of Israel, there are those who would say the real problem with the state of Israel is its creation by Zionists, by people who initially bought up land having traveled to the Middle East from Europe and from the United States and who then fashioned from that land a predominantly Jewish state and that it's the creation of the State of Israel in itself which creates this conflict. Did the Foreign Office have any recognition of that view or give it any credence?
1: No, the Foreign Office has recognized the right to exist of the state of Israel. In 1947, a UN resolution was passed recognizing the state of Israel. I think what would be far better would be if the UK also formally recognized uh, Palestinian statehood as well. It seems to me that has been the biggest imbalance in that we very quickly recognised the state of Israel and Israel's right to exist. We also support a two-state solution, but we have not explicitly recognized Palestinian statehood. And the British position has always been we shouldn't prejudice a final settlement and a negotiated agreement on that. And recognition of Palestinian statehood in and of itself wouldn't produce statehood. But if we're going to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital by moving our embassy And if we were willing to recognize Israeli statehood, then why not make that diplomatic gesture to the Palestinians and recognize Palestinian statehood? That would be an interesting move. But as far as I'm aware, that's not under consideration. I mean, the difficulty you have is, you know, you're asking me, was the creation of Israel in itself a mistake? Well, I have talked about some of the historical historical legacies that the British created. I mean, we could go back in history for decades. Would the Vikings be entitled to claim part of the UK because hundreds of years ago they occupied part of our territory? So I do think there is a problem and we can never find the point at which history existed and was the correct starting point and nothing can be changed since then. I think we have to accept, of course the State of Israel exists And so you may have people who fantasize and say it should never have been created. Israel exists. It is a fact. And given what happened in the Second World War, I think it would be completely morally abhorrent and repugnant to deny the legitimacy of Israel and the importance of a homeland for the Jewish people. It's the failure to make real a state for the Palestinians.
0: I suppose where it differs, though, from your Viking analogy was that, in 1948, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were displaced as a result of the creation of the State of Israel. Those Palestinians in their diaspora now have no right of return to Israel. Many hundreds of thousands of Palestinians are effectively stateless as a result of the creation of the State of Israel. So that is a, an ongoing source of grievance and of conflict?
1: It's an utter tragedy. My heart bleeds genuinely for the Palestinian people because, as you said, hundreds of thousands of them, almost a million, were driven out of their homes when the state of Israel was created. Many of them still languish in refugee camps in Lebanon, Syria and Jordan primarily, A lot of Arab states pledge very sincerely on one level their support for a Palestinian state. And yet, in the meantime, they've not allowed the Palestinians in those refugee camps to integrate more fully into the states where they're currently living. So they are stuck in these refugee camps in this sort of frozen limbo, neither able to return, as you say, but nor fully integrated into the countries where they've been refugees for the last 70 years. I spent time as a student in Israel, both in Israel and in the occupied territories and in Gaza. And I remember traveling with a a young man who was a refugee, lived in a refugee camp in Gaza, and he took me across into Israel and we visited this village. And he pointed to a house and he said, that was my grandparents house. And we were with a group of his friends and we drove through this village. And this was the village that their families had all been driven out of. And the immediacy of that was so poignant. And I was sort of welling up with emotion and then They saw I was getting very upset, and so one of them pointed to a donkey and said, that was my grandfather's donkey, to try and break the tension. But the letter (laughs) was very clear. It's alive and real. Those were their olive trees. Those were their houses. Those were their farms. And they've been driven out, and they have not been able to return. And this is the complete tragedy, because trying to find a resolution to the conflict either involves allowing all these refugees to return, but then in such numbers that they outnumber the number of Jews and it becomes hard for Israel to remain a Jewish state, or denying them that right of return. And they've been robbed of their original homes forever, dispossessed, which is how many people describe the Palestinians. They were dispossessed. It's an utter tragedy. What's also... Tragedy is that the international community. I mean, I was reading the speeches by Prime Minister Yair Lapid to the United Nations General Assembly earlier this month. And on one level, it was a very good speech. It spoke very movingly about sharing a home with the Palestinians, Israeli commitment to a two state solution, the desire for peace, that Israel was willing to create peace. And on one level, that said all the things you would like it to say. But then you look at the reality on the ground, and Israel is still building settlements on occupied territory, on illegally occupied territory in violation of the Geneva Conventions. Israel has banned a number of human rights and civil society organizations recently. They continue to use excessive force. So if you look at the headlines from the newspapers in the region, almost every day, some Palestinian teenager is shot and wounded or killed. And every so often, very sadly, some young Israeli soldier is also shot and killed or attacked in some attack by a Palestinian. So both peoples are suffering. And then the Palestinians, I feel like they're a sort of forgotten people because the international community pays lip service to this two-state solution but nothing is happening in practice to make that a reality. And so year after year after year, the same litany of settler violence against Palestinians, Palestinian youth throwing stones at Israeli settlers, Israeli forces using disproportionate force to suppress them, demolition of Palestinian homes, the seizure of Palestinian territory to make way for new Israeli settlements, continued trouble at the Dome of the Rock. It's just tragic. It is just a tragedy. And it's been going on for 70 years. And I look at the live conflict in Ukraine today, and I think the international community, including the UK, has been wonderful in its support for Ukraine i hope we keep supporting ukraine and i hope we continue to supply them with arms and condemn russia's actions there but what if that becomes a frozen conflict and 50 or 70 years from now some future british prime minister let's say there's a different government in russia that is more democratic and meanwhile ukraine has perhaps regressed from democracy will some future british prime minister decide it's no longer convenient to condemn Russia's annexation of Crimea, maybe we'll just recognise Crimea because we want a trade deal with Russia. I mean, these principles really matter.
0: Alexandra, thank you very much indeed. That's Alexandra Hall-Hall, thanks to her. Thanks to the dog as well, Alexandra, which uh, (laughs) gets royally entertained during your conversation. Uh, That's (laughs) That's Alexandra Hall-Hall. Sorry?
1: I have three dogs and I threw them all outside but they are woofing at people walking by, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, they were welcome guests and so were you thank you alexandra i'm adrian goldberg this has been the byline times podcast don't forget to subscribe to the byline times because in so doing you'll get a brilliant monthly newspaper you'll also help to fund this podcast get full details over at bylinetimes.com that's at bylinetimes.com i'll see you again soon thanks for listening now cheers bye